I want to share with all our listeners that we've launched a Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group, so please join in. We'll post new episodes and relevant articles, but it also can be a place for you to ask questions, give feedback, and suggest guests and topics to us. So please check us out, Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs. What seems to be happening here is a consolidation of power combined with a much more assertive policy at home and regionally. But it may be a not-so-subtle hint to Israel that if you decide to attack um, Lebanon, we're not going to complain too loudly. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen. Today, we're seeking to understand recent events in Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Yemen, and Iran, and to understand what the implications of those developments are. I'm on the line today with Gareth Smith, a journalist who's been covering the Middle East for 25 years, including the Iraq War and its aftermath, and was also for four years the chief correspondent of the Financial Times in Iran. Welcome, Gareth. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Hello. Also joining us is Cecile Shea. She's a non-resident fellow for security and diplomacy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and a frequent guest on Deep Dish. Welcome, Cecile. It's good to have you back. Thank you, Brian. I want to open up by just setting the stage and, and reviewing some really stunning developments in the in the region. Um, uh, over the last few days, a wide variety of powerful Saudi princes and officials have been arrested in the name of a new drive against corruption. I believe it's like 11 kind of major princes and 500 others. Um, uh, the, another interesting development is the Lebanese prime minister, um, Saad Adidi, uh, resigned in a live television broadcast from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, saying that he feared assassination plot and accusing Iran of meddling in the region. Also, um, Saudi Arabia accused Lebanon of declaring war against it because of an aggression by an Iranian-backed Lebanese Shiite group, Hezbollah. Fourth, uh, there was an alleged uh, Houthi missile strike uh, that struck uh, Riyadh from Yemen, um, provoking, the Saudi, uh, provoking Saudi Arabia to close the border of its already embargoed neighbor and warn of war with Iran. So there's a huge amount going on in this region right now. And I want to uh, have you all help us understand kind of what's happening and what are the implications of all these developments. And let me start by just uh, going to Saudi Arabia. Um, there has been this recent um, uh, surge of, of arrests um, and uh, you know, media accounts have tied this to the Saudi Arabian Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman uh, and as part of a power consolidation move. What is going on? Who is this guy and, and what is going on? How do we understand what's happening in Saudi Arabia? What's going on in Saudi Arabia is first and foremost a reminder of how fortunate we are to live in a democracy with a free press and Freedom of Information Act laws. Because, to be very honest, we don't really know what is going on in Saudi Arabia. We know that this large number of people have been arrested. They're being held in the Ritz-Carlton. Um, we know there was a rather mysterious helicopter crash about two hours before the arrest started. And one of the people killed in that helicopter crash is reportedly a major, was a major critic of 
Mohammed bin Salman, who is generally known as MBS. So I'm going to, if that's okay with the listeners, use that um, little abbreviation because it, it gets difficult to say his full name. So, um, so now there are a lot of rumors going on about that helicopter crash. What this does not seem to actually be is a front on the war on corruption in Saudi Arabia. It really smells like a purge, at least looking at it from the outside in. And that's partially because at least one of the people who was arrested is the most, among the very senior, very wealthy members of the royal family, is the single most vocal um, democratic proponent. He, he has been working for a democratic monarchy in Saudi Arabia for a number of years. He's also so phenomenally wealthy that he doesn't need to be corrupt. So the fact that he is included in this mix is even more suspicious as to the motives of MBS in rounding all of these people up. But yet again, and I know we'll move on later to some of the Iran issues that may be tied up in these arrests, because those are really, really interesting. But at least on the surface, we're not quite sure what is going on in Saudi Arabia, but it certainly doesn't look like a war on corruption from the outside. But maybe Gareth disagrees. Yeah, what do you see happening there, Gareth? Well, it looks to me as if you've had the system, a Saudi system, and this is, I think, other than Bolivia, this is the only country in the world that's named after a family or a person. Uh, You've had a system based on a very large and a very rich royal family, thousands and thousands of members, which has tended to proceed quite conservatively and through consensus within that ruling family. What seems to be happening here is a consolidation of power in a smaller number of hands, um, combined with a much more assertive and less conservative policy at home and regionally. And that's sending shockwaves throughout the whole of the Middle East. What are some of the policy implications of this consolidation, or or is it too early to know? You touched a little bit on some of the direction things might be going, Gareth, but what are the implications in the region and and Saudi Arabia as an actor in the region? Well, Prince Mohammed bin Salman is is associated with um, certain domestic reforms, including uh, privatization. Um, He's associated very, very strongly. I mean, he's been defense minister. This is a man who's only 32. He's been associated with the war in Yemen, um, which he's pursued, or Saudi Arabia has pursued with some vigor, um, maybe 10,000 deaths in in Yemen, where essentially they're intervening in what is a civil war. So he's associated with domestic reforms, but he's also associated with a more assertive, uh, aggressive, if you like, foreign policy which again departs from the conservatism that we, we were used in the past to seeing Saudi Arabia display. Yeah, one example is uh, Saudis have announced that they're going to let women drive for the first time. So that's seen in part as outreach to the very large number of young Saudis. Two-thirds of the country is under age 30. Um, they look on the wealthy, rich aristocrats with a certain amount of disdain, Unemployment is very high. They realize the oil is not going to go on forever. Oil prices are really low. That is harming the economy generally in Saudi Arabia. There's no economic diversification. Unlike some of the smaller um, oil states in the region, there's been no attempt by the ruling family to diversify, to bring in universities, to educate the young people for the future. And this is a big problem. And MBS, who is himself a young man, 32, is aware that he has to do something to appeal to two-thirds of the population. So 
he seems to think it's going to be a mixture of economic reforms, of job training, um, perhaps of reaching out to some of the more liberal members of that two-thirds of the population, such as by letting women drive. But he has to be careful because just like in the U.S., there's a difference between the young population and some of the more urban areas who are a little wealthier, who have traveled more broadly overseas, and some of the very traditional, more rural areas. And they may not like some of the moderation that he's talking about. So he's actually to the extent that he is serious about wanting to engage in some of this moderation. And he, by the way, has gone so far as to say that he wants to move Saudi Arabia toward being a moderate Islamic state, a moderate Muslim state. And it is very hard to imagine that happening. Remember, you can't even be Christian in Saudi Arabia. You can't be Jewish in Saudi Arabia. You have to be Muslim. And so the idea that the that the nation that holds Mecca at its core would somehow become slightly more diversified is very hard to picture. So I also want to touch on the relationship with the U.S. and particularly, uh, my guess is it's speculative, but the relationship with the Trump administration. As our listeners will recall, when Donald Trump made his big um, Middle East visit, he started off in Saudi Arabia. He, he really praised Saudi Arabia incredibly strongly, emphasized the, the alliance with the U.S. Um, and what is the position of the Trump administration vis-a-vis this set of actions? And is there a sense that the Trump administration acquiesced to it, encouraged this kind of, um, this kind of move, these arrests, and this power consolidation? What do, what do we know about that? That's a very good question. I mean, Trump issued a tweet um, welcoming um, uh, the prince's move. Uh, so he, he, he seems to be taking... Uh, sides in what looks like a factional battle within the Saudi uh, ruling family. Um, I don't really recall an American president doing that before. Well, and he had a little tweet storm with the one true reformer that I mentioned before his election even. Um, And I'm sorry, Gareth, maybe you remember the name, but this prince, this very wealthy prince, had um, sent out a tweet saying America deserved better than Donald Trump. And Donald Trump responded in a very shall we say, non-traditional manner for a political candidate talking about someone who's not even a U.S. citizen. And that was one of the first signs that this is going to be a very um, different relationship. So he at least, Donald Trump is at least going to know that that critic of his is one of the people who is being held at the hotel where they are holding these 500 or so folks. Yeah, I think you're talking about Al-Walid bin Talal. Yes, thank you. Um, thank you. The chairman of Kim Kingdom Holding, who's a major investor in in a lot of American companies, um, and an extremely rich man. And yes, he's under he's 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 one of the ones under arrest. I mean, I I I don't really know what corruption is in Saudi Arabia. You know, there's there's a long tradition of you know what might be called um, commissions. And and corruption normally requires laws and courts and. You know, th- those kinds of things don't exist in that society. I mean, it's always been the royal family kind of sets its own rules and, and follows its own path. So it's going to be very interesting. And one of the questions is going to be, what is MBS going to do with these 500 or so people? Are there going to be show trials? Mm. 
I'm guessing that almost all of them own very expensive apartments in London and New York. Is he just going to work out deals with the U.S. and Britain and other countries to let these folks quietly leave the country, perhaps with parts of their fortunes? Let's face it, a lot of their fortunes are in Switzerland, so they're going to have access to their yeah. money if they leave. But you know, we know from our own experience with Guantanamo, it's easy to arrest people. It's hard to resolve where they're going to go afterwards. And so this is going to be a challenge for MBS. Well, there is, I mean, there is speculation that 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 um, that that that, that Mohammed bin Salman wants to seize assets um, from these people. I mean, somebody like Al Walid bin Talal is a, is a multi-billionaire, um, and the Saudi state is facing a fiscal challenge. I mean, the deficit is is around, I think, nine percent of the GDP at the moment. That, that's that's a high deficit um, um, to be running. I mean, oil prices have recovered somewhat, but they're still, you know, relatively low, and they're still below the break-even figure. Um, that Saudi Arabia needs for uh, fiscal balance. So I want to pursue this a little bit just in terms of the question of timing. Why did why did this action happen now? Um, and some people have pointed to the rivalry, uh, regional rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran and the escalating conflicts with Iran. How do you see why Saudi Arabia or the leadership took this action now? Yeah. And one of the questions is, did MBS arrest many of these people because they are opposed to the way that he is pursuing Iran, both against the Houthis in Yemen and just more generally in his more bellicose type foreign policy toward Iran? It may very well be that a lot of the folks who who he has now imprisoned um, were folks who were saying, you know, you need to back off. This is not good for our country. This is a little dangerous. He clearly has Iran on the mind. He's very worried about what um, about Iranian influence in the region. What has happened as Assad has gained control of Syria and as the Syrian civil war has basically toned down to the point where it's probably almost over, is a lot of those Iranian-backed fighters who were fighting in Syria need to go somewhere now. Now, the Lebanese folks can go home. That's going to create a whole new set of problems for Lebanon and Israel. But the non-Lebanese folks, some of whom are from Afghanistan, some are from the former Soviet Union, some are from all sorts of countries, they're needing to find a new home. They've only known, if they're young, they've only known warfare. And so this can potentially be very destabilizing to the region, including to Saudi Arabia. And so that would be one of the reasons that MBS would be really concerned right now about Iranian influence throughout the region. So it seems like there is some kind of larger scale um, plan in play in terms of what Saudi Arabia is going to do about Iran. And this is where the rumors that are flying all around the Middle East, and and in some cases there are a lot more than rumors, um, have come into play the last few days. There is this idea that MBS is hoping that if Hezbollah takes over the Lebanese government without Hariri there, that it will force Israel to attack Lebanon, which would deal a blow to Iran. Now, that seems a little crazy, but extremely extremely intelligent people familiar with the region like Dan Shapiro, our previous ambassador to Israel, have published pretty long articles in the last few days worried that this is exactly Saudi Arabia's plan, that they are hoping to create a situation in Lebanon that will force Israel to attack the country. I, I think I think the, the, the foreign policy has got two, two assertive elements to, to it uh, at the moment. The, the, one, the one is towards Iran and the other one is to, towards Qatar. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia has been blockading Qatar since, since, since June. 
um, ostensibly over Qatar's links to the Muslim Brotherhood, um, who are um, a Sunni group that has basically been pushed back since the suppression of the Arab Spring. Um, in, 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 in both of those conflicts, or in, 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 in both of those standoffs, let's call them, um, the Saudi government is taking a much more assertive stance. Uh, it's not clear to me what it aims to achieve by that stance. And I think that's, that's a lot of what the danger in the region is at the moment, that, that, that this, this assertion that's coming from Saudi Arabia um, doesn't have any clear political end. So there's no clear diplomatic process by which one can see a resolution of these uh, conflicts or these tensions. That's, that's what makes the situation so dangerous. And, of course, there is a massive arms build-up. Gareth, do you think that um, the, the Qatar or Qatar blockade really is over the Muslim Brotherhood, or is that just an excuse because um, Saudi Arabia is actually concerned about Qatar's ties to Iran and the fact that Qatar has a really sizable Shia population? I think the Saudis are very concerned about the Muslim Brotherhood. I think the Saudis have been very concerned since the Arab Spring um, about and any kind of quasi-democratic movement in the Arab world, uh, the, the Saudi state is, 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 is essentially conservative in the sense that it's founded on a, on a, monarch, on, on a monarchical system. Um, I mean, let's not forget the Saudis supported Assad um, right up until, well, 2011. And it was only after the Arab Spring or the, 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 the Arab Spring broke out in Syria that the Saudis withdrew their support from Assad. And why did the Saudis support the Assads? I mean, Bashar and his father, Hafez al-Assad, before him, because they saw them as a bulwark against the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, the, 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 the notion that you could have a, a quasi-democratic, populist, uh, Islamic movement in the Middle East is, is, is anathema to the Saudis. And, and, and I think that's what underlies their attitude towards Qatar. They saw Qatar as being irresponsible um, in the way that Qatar, which is, after all, another monarchy, but... It it, 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 it it flirted with with Ikhwan, with the with, with the Muslim Muslim brothers. It sponsored this um, um, this television station, um, uh, Jazeera, which would interview anyone in the Middle East and would put anyone on uh, any any radicals, Ikhwan, the Muslim brothers, and, and and could be very critical and have very very balanced programming. Other than about Qatar, of course, which it, it was never critical of, and that really got the Saudis' noses even 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 before this current crown prince. So yes, I, I, I think their pressure on Qatar is about is about that. I don't think it's primarily about Qatar's links with Iran. And it sounds like that pressure is likely to continue, given what we've what we've just said. The people driving that policy are the folks who are even more powerful now in Saudi Arabia. I want to take us back to Lebanon. Well, well, right. I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. Sorry, and, that, and that's what I feel. That's. That's what I, 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 I find a little bit confusing. I think a lot of people in the region do find confusing about what this policy is trying to achieve. Because if, if the idea of the pressure on Qatar is to move Qatar away from Ikhwan or to move Qatar away from Iran, it's having exactly the opposite effect. Because the blockade has brought Qatar much closer to Turkey and much closer to Iran. And I think this case, uh, I, I think um, this case also illustrates the complexity of the of, of the region, right? I want to take us back to, to Lebanon to unpack that a little more for for folks. I mean, we've got this amazing, um, amazing development where the prime minister of Lebanon goes on TV in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, to resign his post. We've talked a little bit about this. But can you talk about um, the, the 
talk about Lebanon in terms of the contest that's going on between Iran and Saudi Arabia that is playing out in part in, in Lebanon. What, what's, what's the nature of the conflict there and, and, and why is Lebanon in the middle of this thing? I mean, it's quite simple. I mean, Lebanon is a very mixed society. Uh, it has a lot of Sunni Muslims, a lot of Shia Muslims, and, 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 and a lot of Christians. Lebanon had an awful civil war from 75 to, to, to 90, and that civil war was brought to an end through the Taif Agreement, which is essentially negotiated between Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Syria. It, it was a three-way compromise. So Lebanon is built on this kind of this compromise, this kind of consensus. So when the regional consensus breaks down, primarily now between Saudi Arabia and Iran, Lebanon is the first place where the cracks start to appear. Yeah, and Lebanon is traditionally the home of Hezbollah, which is a U.S. list as a terrorist organization, backed by Iran. affiliated with Iran, yeah. Um, has really, throughout, in part because of the Syrian war, um, Hezbollah has been able to really extend its influence throughout the Middle East, including building roads, um, pipelines for um, Iranian products and war material to run from Iran um, all the way to Lebanon. It doesn't get much press here in the U.S., but Israel has had a lot of tactical attacks on Hezbollah targets inside Syria over the last few months. And it's interesting that the other countries in the region are not complaining. I think it shows just how complex the situation is and how worried a lot of the Sunni states are about Iranian influence in the region. So what you will have is you will have um, weapons of war moving through Syria on the way to Lebanon. Israel will send planes up and bomb those um, those weapons, and and then there's relative quiet for a few days, and then Israel will make another attack. The question again becomes, um, if Hezbollah now is able to come to power, remember Hezbollah is, is a political group in, in Lebanon as, as well as a terrorist entity. If Hezbollah is able to come to power now because the Saudi-backed Prime Minister has been allowed to resign and there's no alternative, it seems. What will happen? Will that mean more Hezbollah attacks on Israel? Will it mean more arms running through um, Syria on the way to other countries in the region? Um, Iran is planning to build an airbase in Syria and a port. And it's actually somewhat controversial, and Gareth can probably speak more to this than I can, but it's actually very co- fairly controversial in Iran because the economy in Iran is not very good, and there are a lot of people who would rather see tax money spent on other things inside Iran than building bases in Syria. But if Iran does build bases in Syria, what is that going to mean for the region? What is that going to mean for the U.S. Um, if Iranian influence starts expanding that way? So the situation is complicated and opaque, frankly. It's, it's hard to know what any of these groups' long-term plans are. Gareth, would you like to add anything to that? The war in Syria is not the doing of Iran. I mean, Iran's original involvement and Hezbollah's uh, original involvement in, in Syria was to uh, was to defend the shrines, and and I think it's developed into a defense of Assad, who's a key who's a key Iranian ally. Um, I don't think I don't think it's correct to portray the Iranian influence. In, in in Syria is somehow um, aggressive. I, th- I think it's fundamentally defensive. I don't think 
Iran is under any, any illusion that it's going to rule Syria. No, I, I, and I don't think anyone is saying that it will. I think the concern of many people is that um, road networks and basically ground lines of communication um, have grown dramatically through Iraq, um, Syria, and into Lebanon, and it allows um, Iranian weapons of war, commodities, food, all sorts of things to pass much more freely throughout the region. The The question about these bases in Syria, and they do seem to be kind of a thank you present from Assad, which is, you know, you helped defend my situation, you and the Russians. And so now we know we owe you. So your request to build an air base or, or a um, base on the Mediterranean will be granted. Building bases is really expensive. It's not sure ultimately that the Iranians will do that, but there seem to be factions inside Iran that would like to. And then suddenly you have a forward position. Again, they're not they may view it as a defensive position. They may think that they need um, a forward position to defend themselves from possible American attacks in the future or Israeli attacks in the future. But nevertheless, that is a, a change in the region, a change in the balance of power that countries like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and, and other Sunni countries are not going to be very happy about. And in terms of regional dynamics, uh, particularly between Saudi Arabia and Iran, what do each of you make of the fact that Saudi Arabia accused Lebanon of declaring war against it so that, you know, Lebanon's declared war on Saudi Arabia, according to the Saudis? Uh, and as I understand it, the justification was because of aggression by the Hezbollah, Iranian-backed Lebanese Shiite group. What do we make of, of this language about the declaration of war, and, and how do we interpret this move? Hezbollah has got its fighters in Syria. I mean, I think, I think most Hezbollah fighters are, are, are fighting for their lives in Syria um, in, in alliance with Assad. Saudi Arabia spends $90 billion a year on defense. You know, the notion that Lebanon has declared war on Saudi Arabia is, is farcical. But it may be a not-so-subtle hint to Israel that if you decide to attack um, Lebanon, we're not going to complain too loudly. And this gets to the issue of why the um, president of the Palestinian Authority was summoned to Saudi Arabia this week. Um, the, the thinking is, is that he's been told to work with Islamic Jihad, which is, which is, which has good relations with Iran. It's not an Iranian proxy, but it certainly has good relations with Iran, and Hamas to maintain quiet in Gaza because um, the Saudis, according to this theory, don't want a lot distracting Israel because they're hoping that Israel will be more focused on the situation in Lebanon. And, and Gareth is right. These Hezbollah fighters have been fighting in Syria, but the fighting has is, is really um, come way down in recent weeks and months, and so those fighters are going to be going home. And that does concerns some countries in the region. Interestingly, it concerns Egypt on another front because some of those fighters seem to be moving into Libya. So that's a whole other complication um, to the region, which is the status of some of these other fairly weak and still unstable countries and what will happen if Hezbollah fighters who are admittedly relatively few in number, but if these folks start to move into already unstable countries like Libya, what is that going to do to the region? Another dimension of kind of declarations of war in the region 
is that uh, uh, Houthi rebels in Yemen um, fired a missile uh, at a Saudi Arabian airport. And one of the interesting responses was the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia asserted that with this action, Iran had effectively declared war as well. He said, quote, we see this as an act of war. Iran cannot lob missiles at Saudi cities and towns and expect us not to take steps, end quote. Is that the way to understand what's going on? And, and what are the Saudis about in this? That's the second declaration of war. Then. I mean, not only has Lebanon declared war on Saudi Arabia, apparently um, uh, Yemen or, or Iran has declared war on Saudi Arabia as well. I mean, this was a missile fired in response to uh, Saudi bombing of Yemen, which has been going on for some time now, some some year and a half, is it? Um, which has killed thousands and thousands of people. Um, four days before this missile was fired at Riyadh, the Saudis hit a market in Yemen and killed 26. And this personally concerns me about MBS's rise to power, because the situation in Yemen is a humanitarian catastrophe. People are literally starving to death. There is no medicine. Um, children are in harm's way on a daily basis. And this is largely because of Saudi-backed forces that have been waging this campaign now for several years. And the world community has been asking Saudi Arabia to back off, to take a more humanitarian approach. They have been asking Saudi Arabia what exactly the end game is. And, and this, again, is a sign of MBS's real focus on Iran that we haven't seen from other Saudi Arabias, excuse me, from other Saudi officials in the past. There's never, for a thousand and more years, there's never been love between, you know, the Arabian Peninsula and the Persian Kingdom. This is nothing new. But this kind of focus to the point of allowing and encouraging a humanitarian catastrophe in a neighboring country, this is something that is new and is deeply troubling. And to the extent that it is being encouraged and led by this 32-year-old defense minister who is MBS, then I do have a certain amount of of concern about his consolidation of power. And I do wonder how many of those 500 people who he's arrested were people who were complaining about the Saudi involvement in the Yemen civil war. Do you have a view on this, Gareth? I mean, one thing that we haven't raised, which I think is very important, and in a way goes back to what I was saying about Taif, which ended the Lebanon war, um, uh, the Taif Agreement of, 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 of 1989, is what is the international community, you know, what is the international framework for doing anything about any of this? I mean, the only country that seems to be really engaging with the various regional powers is Russia. In the last six weeks, Putin welcomed King Salman in, in Moscow, and then he went to Tehran to see uh, the Iranian leadership, in, in, including Ayatollah Khamenei. Um, Russia is, is, is sponsoring the only real peace process, if we can, can use that word, um, uh, for, for Syria, the Astana peace process. And you have the United States um, with the president who's offering a tweet um, supporting one faction in the Saudi power struggle, if that's what it is that's going on. And of course, the United States is also, as is Russia, um, involved in supplying um, weapons to to various of the combatants. Um, so we are lacking a coherent um, and effective international framework for resolving these conflicts. I mean, the Middle East is a complex part of the world, but um, all of the world is complex if, if you really get down and look at it. What is uh, lacking um, in the Middle East is a coherent diplomatic procedure 
um, or, or a coherent diplomatic framework to resolve these conflicts other than through violence. Because the problem with violence is that although you may solve one short-term problem, you may create four or five other problems which will um, grow and grow and grow and leap up and bite you. Yeah, I agree completely. And I can't imagine MBS pulling what he's done the last week or so, say when George H.W. Bush was president or um, even when George W. Bush was president or when President Obama was president. This seems like the move of a person who believes that the United States is not going to stop him. And we have a lot of stake in this region. I mean, I think that may be the biggest understatement in the history of this podcast. We have a lot at stake in the Middle East and not just oil. And we cannot afford to have another part of the world tied up in knots and potentially breaking out in, in a war. And even if it's a contained war, and, you know, I'm reading people saying, well, a, a war between Israel and, and Lebanon would be a contained war. There's no way to keep wars contained, first of all. And that is such a cynical approach to looking at things. There will still be people dying and there will still be um, economies ruined and there will still be a loss of trust in the region. And so the United States, I agree with Gareth completely, the United States needs to be there trying to um, tamp down some of these flames and trying to help these countries move forward together towards some kind of peaceful future. And that is really not happening right now. And and let's not think that Vladimir Putin is is working to the ends of um, of democracy and humanity in the region. He's working toward his own ends in the region. And so there has to be another group of countries there. I don't think the U.S. can do it alone. But um, a lot of countries need to be working and, and helping people talk to each other and helping to resolve some of the current tensions. Putin is working for what he sees as Russia's uh, national interest, I mean, economic interest and political interest. You know, that's a mentality that it's fairly easy to understand and to analyze and to work with. I think the problem with the current American administration is that people in the region have very little idea what this administration perceives its interest to be, political or economical. And, and, and I think that is, that is that, that it's, it's, it's extremely dangerous. So as we close, let me ask you both the same question. If you were to sit down with the Trump administration, what would be your top recommendation to this administration for responding to the set of developments that we've been talking about? Gareth, you want to start? Well, I think the most important thing in the region as a whole is to keep the nuclear agreement with Iran. I mean, I think if the nuclear agreement with Iran unpacks, I think there's a whole new dimension and a whole new escalation. That was a very complicated agreement to uh, to, to arrive at. It was complicated technically, it was complicated politically, it was complicated diplomatically because there were so many parties involved. I mean, I think President Obama hoped that would be uh, a step towards um, a wider way of solving problems in the regions through dialogue and through discussion and through diplomacy, through recognizing people's national interests. I'm not saying there's anything to do with democracy, etc., etc., um, but I think for that now to unravel, I think would be extremely dangerous. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We need to maintain the nuclear agreement. And beyond that, I've said a number of times, I think we need to have diplomatic relations with Iran. We need an ambassador there talking to the Iranian regime. We need an Iranian ambassador in Washington um, talking to us. You know, not talking never gets any group of countries 
anywhere. Uh, even during the depths of the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were in constant contact, and we managed to avoid frankly, the end of civilization. So we need to be talking to the Iranians. This is an old empire. It is a proud empire. The Iranian people actually like Americans. They like the U.S. Our two countries have a great deal in common in terms of religiosity and respect for learning and respect for science. It could be a great relationship. But speaking at them and encouraging paranoia among the leadership is really counterproductive. So if I were to make one suggestion to the Trump administration, and I realize that it would be met with shock in in the in the um, current with the current mindset of the administration. But my one suggestion would be: let's open up diplomatic relations with Iran and try to get our relationship back on a solid footing. Well, Gareth and Cecile, thanks so much for being here today. It's a complex part of the world. And, and one of the things that I think you've done very well for us is to link together and show the linkages between a number of discrete developments, uh, which seen in isolation, you don't really understand the bigger picture that, that is emerging here. So thank you both for being here. Thanks so much, Brian. Gareth, nice talking to you. And to you. Thank you. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today are those of the people who express them and not the institutional positions of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please subscribe and ask someone else to subscribe as well. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Deep Dish on Global Affairs is produced by Evan Fazio and our research and editing interns are Mike Tiernan and Bernie Fascio. I'm Brian Hansen. We'll be back soon for another slice of Deep Dish. I want to share with all our listeners that we've launched a Facebook group. You can find us on Facebook under Deep Dish on Global Affairs. This is a public group, so please join in. We'll post new episodes and relevant articles, but it also can be a place for you to ask questions, give feedback, and suggest guests and topics to us. So please check us out, Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs. Deep Dish listeners, we've been publishing bonus episodes of storytelling from our own Roger Thoreau's new storytelling series called Outrage and Inspire. We wanted to present his latest episode as an addendum to today's episode of Deep Dish and encourage you to subscribe to his Outrage and Inspire podcast in iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. This is Outrage and Inspire. From the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, a storytelling series about food and hunger by Roger Thoreau. Throw a stone into a placid pond, and what happens? A series of ripples form, eventually spreading across the entire pond. That is also what happens with every child in the world who is stunted physically and cognitively from malnutrition in the early years of life. The ripples begin with the impact on the individual child and then expand to the family, the community, the nation, the continent, and eventually to the entire world. The effect of stunting, a life sentence of underachievement and underperformance, rolls across time and place, for a stunted child becomes a stunted adult. As we will see, a stunted child anywhere becomes a stunted child everywhere. Every child deserves a chance to reach his or her full potential. This is the most widely shared human aspiration, the hope for every child who comes into this world to develop the good health, strength of body, and intellectual capacity 
to achieve all that is possible. It is at the top of the wish list for mothers, fathers, and grandparents everywhere, and it matters even to those without any children of their own. We want this not only for the sake of the individual child, but for the sake of us all, for who knows what any child might one day contribute to our common good. It is in the first thousand days of life, from conception to a child's second birthday, that the stage is set for fulfilling individual potential. This is the time, science tells us, when the brain develops most rapidly and robustly, when the immune system is bolstered, when the foundation of physical growth is laid. This is also the time, reality shows us, when potential can be undermined by a single bad harvest, or the perils of a mosquito bite, or a sip of dirty water, malnutrition, malaria, and diarrhea being the greatest threats to child development, by the lack of something taken for granted in the wealthy world, like a toilet or electricity, by discrimination and ignorance. If we want to shape the future, to truly improve the world, we have 1,000 days to do it, mother by mother, child by child. For what happens in those first 1,000 days, through pregnancy to the second birthday, determines to a large extent the course of a child's life, his or her ability to grow, learn, work, succeed, and by extension, the long-term health, stability, and prosperity of the society in which that child lives. Then why don't we? Why do we continue to squander so much potential greatness of our children? The thousand-day period has always existed, of course, but it has never been at the center of attention in public policy. World Health and Development organizations have in the past usually fixated on age five in primary school as milestone targets for intervention. Getting children into school, universal primary education, has long been a holy grail of successful development. While ensuring proper brain growth and cognitive development in the first thousand days, so children are actually capable of learning once they get to school, has largely been neglected. Interventions to prevent undernutrition, such as school feeding programs and initiatives to lower obesity rates, have also centered on primary school rather than on the 1,000 days, when the consequences of malnutrition are most severe and the preconditions for obesity are forming. Nutrition, which works silently and internally, has long been a neglected stepchild of international development, part agriculture, part health, but disdainfully disowned by both fields. Agriculture's practitioners have often believed their main task to be the production of ever-increasing yields. Concerns about the nutritious quality of the food have been dismissed as a nuisance that could only interfere with quantity. And the health ministries of the world have been in a constant chase of dollars to combat the disease du jour, desperately scrounging for the resources to vaccinate mothers and children. Providing proper nourishment was not their bailiwick. Nutrition, not our responsibility. It was the one thing agriculture and health ministers could agree on. The leading development organizations also did little to help elevate nutrition's profile. In the past decades, less than 1% of total international development aid has been spent on nutrition. It was an illogical imbalance. Nutrition was everywhere in human development, but virtually nowhere in development strategies. And so it is that the ancient scourge of malnutrition persists as our planet's most pressing threat to health and prosperity. Good nutrition is the indispensable fuel of growth and development, particularly in the thousand days. It is the accelerant of a good start in life. Babies grown in the womb receive all nutrients from their mother. If she lacks key vitamins and minerals in her diet for her own health, so will her baby. 
For infants, mom's breast milk provides an array of vital micronutrients and an early immunization against illness and disease that helps fortify the body. Once complementary feeding begins, usually around six months of age, healthy foods ensure continued growth and brain development. Foods introduced at this time also shape a child's lifelong relationship to food and the body's reaction to it. Any prolonged shortage of food or persistent lack of vital micronutrients such as iron, zinc, iodine, and vitamin A in a thousand days can set back growth and development, sometimes irreversibly. So too can repeated bouts of diarrhea that take nutrients out of the body or an intestinal infection of worms or parasites that prevent the body from absorbing the minerals and vitamins it needs, making clean water, proper hygiene, adequate sanitation, and access to basic health care vital accompaniments to good nutrition. As obvious and time-worn as all this may seem, how many times did our mothers tell us, eat your vegetables, wash your hands? Both the knowledge and its practice remain revolutionary in many places in our world today, whether in Africa, Asia, or the Americas. If it was once easy, or convenient at least, to ignore the fate of a single child, to compartmentalize malnutrition and stunting as sad problems over there somewhere, it is no longer. Malnutrition has not only gone big, it has gone global. A stunted child in Africa or Asia or Latin America is a stunted child everywhere, as the impact, particularly the economic cost, rolls through time and across societies and around the world. Which brings us back to those ripples. The first ripple is the individual. A child with stunted cognitive development has difficulty learning in school and drops out early, which diminishes the child's prospect for success in the labor force. A study in eastern Guatemala that now spans five decades has found that children who were well-nourished in the thousand days completed several more grades of school than malnourished children. As adults, the better-nourished group earned 20 to 40 percent more in wages, and they were less likely to develop a chronic illness. The next ripple is the family of the stunted child, who will likely earn less than a full wage and incur higher health care costs than it would otherwise be necessary making the families climb out of poverty that much more difficult. For many families, the impact of malnutrition and stunting steamrolls through the generations in an accumulation of historical insults. Stunted girls grow up to be stunted women who give birth to underweight babies. The cycle spins on. The ripples from stunting then widen to engulf the entire community. For where there is one malnourished child, there are certainly more. Labor pools are depleted, productivity is sapped, economic growth lags. The next ripple is the nation, countries with high child stunting rates, and there are more than 70 countries where at least 20% of the children are stunted. Calculate that they annually lose between 5%, for example, Guatemala and Uganda, and 16%, Ethiopia, of their gross domestic product to low labor productivity, high health care expenditures, and other impacts of malnutrition. The ripples extend to entire continents and regions, sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia, where aggregate malnutrition stands at about 40% and stunting is the highest in the world, each lose an estimated 11% of gross national product every year. Why do some countries and regions of the world remain poor? Because their mothers and children are malnourished and stunted. They have a lousy first 1,000 days. Which brings us to the final ripple the cumulative toll of these individual, family, community, and national costs 
imposes a significant drag on global productivity, international trade, and health care, stunting the world economy by as much as $3.5 trillion in economic activity, squandered every year. That's trillion with a T. Those are big numbers, but perhaps the greatest costs of malnutrition and stunting are immeasurable. A poem not written, a song not sung, a novel not imagined, a gadget not invented, a building not designed, a mystery not solved, a horizon not explored, an idea not formed, an inspiration not shared, an innovation not nurtured, a cure not discovered. What might a child have contributed to the world if he or she hadn't been stunted in the first thousand days? A lost chance at greatness for one child is a lost chance for us all. I'm Roger Thurow. Thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Editor, Evan Fazio. This has been a bonus presentation of Roger Thoreau's new Outrage and Inspire storytelling series. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to Outrage and Inspire in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts.